Numbers, again, you know, it's a book that is often, I would say, passed over by a, a lot of people, a lot of believers, a lot of Christians, in, in reading through the Bible. Numbers, I think, is one that's quickly kind of passed over and just sort of neglected again, much like Leviticus, because numbers, I think for a lot of people, all they think of is numbers, genealogy, count. This person begot this person. This person had this many people in the family. And they just kind of think, oh man, I don't want to get bogged down by all that stuff, right? And so I think a lot of people do indeed just kind of skip over numbers because it sounds boring. Now the Greek name for numbers is interestingly the, the word arithmoi, where we get our word arithmetic. And I hate arithmetic. So I'm like that, you know, one of those people that would rather just kind of go, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't like math. I don't like arithmetic. But the Hebrew word for numbers is this Hebrew word, bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. In the wilderness. So thank goodness this is a book that's more than just about numbers, but it becomes about really the journeying of the people of Israel through the wilderness as they are making their way to the promised land. Although it should have been an easy journey, this book becomes more about this arrested development or arrested progress. You've all, I'm sure, experienced those family road trips, right? Where you're in the car driving somewhere and you got kids in the back. Are we there yet? Can we stop? When's the next stop? I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. My brother's bugging me. And you've had those road trips. You're just like, <laughs> like that at the steering wheel, right? That's not really God, but that's kind of the position that God is in right now as he's dealing with all these children of Israel journeying through the, 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 the wilderness on their way to the promised land, but doing nothing but complaining. That's what we are seeing in the book of Numbers ultimately here. Now resuming right from where Exodus left off. Oh, I didn't put these slides up, sorry. Okay, I'm getting a little bit too excited here. So there's the, the words there that these things mean. But resuming from where we left off in, in Exodus, this book now picks up right from where we were in Exodus, but understand something here. The Exodus, you know, took about, say, 40 hours, but it's going to take 40 years. It took 40 hours to get the people out of Egypt, but it's going to end up taking 40 years to get Egypt out of the people, all right? To get them on track, really, with walking this this walk of faith in the Lord, believing in the Lord. And so this book of Numbers, it's lined with lessons even for us today of how we can either be those that are walking in faith and obedience into the wonderful abundant life that we have in and through Jesus Christ or whether we're going to continue on in this arrested state of apathy and grumbling which becomes then a wilderness wandering for us even. And so this is what this book really starts to lead us in and teach us and bring application for us. This was a journey that was to take just about 11 days. Moses uh, says as much in the book of Deuteronomy, about 11 days to where they needed to go, but it's going to end up taking them 40 years because they doubted God. A trip of 11 days takes 40 years. How's that for numbers right there? All because they doubted God. So um, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, again, a video walkthrough here of the book of Numbers. It's going to, again, show us a little bit here about an overview of this here. So, and then we'll go through a lot of these things. Um, do we have sound going on this video? Or do we even have this video going? Okay, let me back it up here. All right. We good? Okay. The book of Numbers gets overlooked, partly because it has a really boring name. Which is a shame. In the Hebrew tradition, the book's name is Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. And it's an epic travel log about Israel's journey through the desert on their way to the land promised to Abraham. Now, this pilgrimage should only take about two weeks on foot. But instead, it takes them about 40 years. That's crazy. It's practically half of someone's lifetime. Yeah, it's a very long camping trip with lots of interesting stories, but... Let's remember, it's most helpful to back up and start with how this book is designed. Right. So the book is broken up into five sections. There are three wilderness locations broken up by two road trips that link all the pieces together. 
The first wilderness section is Mount Sinai, right here on the map. And then in the second section, they travel to a region called Paran. A whole bunch of things happen here in the wilderness of Paran. And then in this fourth section is Israel's road trip to Moab. The book ends with a large section in the wilderness of Moab, right across the Jordan River from the Promised Land. Now, through all of these sections, the storyline just flows like a gripping dramatic movie. Everything starts great, but then the trip goes horribly wrong, and it all ends with the final redemptive moment, the surprising act of God's grace. So let's jump into this story. It all begins at the wilderness at Mount Sinai, and we've become really familiar with this mountain. Yeah, if you remember, Israel came here after Egypt, and they formed a covenant with God here, got the Ten Commandments here, built the tabernacle here, and they've been at this mountain for one full year. And now they take a census to number the people as they prepare to leave. Right, and they're given these instructions for how to organize all those people in the camp. God's presence in the tabernacle, and then the tribe of Levi and the priests around it, and then the rest of the tribes around them. And this pattern, it's this visual symbol for how God's holiness is at the center of their existence as a people. And they're told that when the cloud of God's presence moves, they're to pack up and travel with it. Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant is carried by the Levites out in front, and then the tribe of Judah, and on and on. And this order is also a symbol for how God's holy presence is their leader and guide through the wilderness. We begin the second section of the book with enthusiasm as they leave Mount Sinai and travel up to Paran. God's with them, everything's organized. This is going to be great. But it's not great. After just three days on the road, the people are complaining about their hunger and thirst. And then even Moses' brother and sister start bad-mouthing him in front of all the people. Not a great start. But now we're into the third section, the wilderness of Paran. This is where they send the 12 spies to scout out the promised land. Two of those spies come back and they're really optimistic. But the other 10 are freaked out and they don't trust God and they go around saying, we're going to get annihilated in there. And so they start a mutiny and they try to appoint a new leader who's going to take all the people back to Egypt. And so basically they are refusing to go into the promised land and God honors their choice. He says that this generation is going to wander for 40 years and die in the wilderness and only their kids will get to enter the promised land. You know, this story here gets brought up many times in the Bible by different authors. Yeah, and it always serves as a reminder that while God remains faithful to his people and his promises, he will honor their choices. He'll, he'll let them waste their whole lives if they choose to live in rebellion. All right. So we're going to finish that up next week here as we see the second half of that, we're going to get through just um, half of this book here tonight, Lord willing. But so in this book here, we're going to see two senses being given, as Ali mentioned here, two senses coming in the book of Numbers, one at the beginning of the book and then one near the end of the book. One was taken at the start of their wilderness wanderings. It's in chapter one here. Uh, verse 46 really gives us the, the final number. The other is going to be taken some 38 years Later on here now in their wilderness wandering, towards the end of their wanderings there. Now, it's interesting that the first census numbered, it numbered just the men and just the men that were fit to go to battle. So those above 20 years and able to go to war. The first census numbered them at 603,550, according to verse 46 of chapter 1. The, the second census that came 38 years later in chapter 26, verse 51, numbered them at 601,730. So it's interesting and we're going to see all the different things that come into it. But man, this, this wilderness wandering took its toll, right? The times that, you know, they had been walking should have been times where they're growing in, in fruitfulness and in numbers. And yet here they are decreasing. It's, I think it's, you know, like that for us. The times that we spend wandering through life in a wilderness journey that comes from rebellion and unbelief, as we'll see with the children of Israel, are going to be times of unfruitfulness and lack of growth, even in our own lives. If we're choosing not to follow the Lord in the way that he wants us to, the things that he has for us, if we're choosing to hold back in rebellion or, or not move forward because of unbelief, there are going to be times that are marked by just unfruitfulness and lack of growth. And we see that evident here with the, the people of Israel. Their doubt... Their doubt led to dryness, and their dryness eventually led to death, as God had that entire generation from that first census basically die out in the wilderness before entering the promised land, all except for Joshua and Caleb here. And so 
Only those two were able to move forward because they were people of faith. God rewarded them. And we'll see that as we move along here. So like I said, Numbers continues right where Exodus left off. Here's how Exodus ended in chapter 40, verse 17. It said this, And it came to pass in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month that the tabernacle was raised up. Now in Numbers, we're in the second month. And Leviticus deals with that month period in between look at 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 chapter 1 verse 1 of numbers now the lord spoke to moses in the wilderness of sinai right where they've been camping out in the tabernacle meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they'd come out of the land of egypt all right and so here it just picks right up now as they're getting ready to move on as the lord's gonna gonna lead them and so we're gonna see definitely in the first part of numbers a lot of numbering all right And though it's something that you oftentimes want to skip over, we see good purpose in it. Because numbering was, first of all, for verification. Remember, Abraham's told, out of you is going to come a great number, Abraham. I'm I'm going to make of you a great nation. So it's for verification. We're we're beginning to see the, the promise of God coming to fruition. It's also useful for identification, to know the people. God numbers the people because he cares for them, all right? We see all this counting going on. God counting the people because the people count before God. God cares about them. God, God knows them. And so it's a reminder for us that, that God sees every person. And he's got them numbered here. I love that. It's for separation. It's to show them that they were really a part of this family. They, they were there for a purpose, for a reason. They're part of God's family. And for organization. This process would mobilize them for war and battle. And put them in a place of preparation. Because God is a God of order. So here's kind of a, an outline we're going to be following through here. We're going to see them in chapters 1 to 10, heading out from Sinai, getting ready to, to move and heading out from Sinai. And then secondly, heading nowhere in the wilderness of Paran, chapter 11 to 21, wilderness wandering. That's a big mark of numbers, right? And then number three, heading into trouble at Moab, chapter 22 to 25. And then number four, heading for the promised land. Chapters 26 to 36. So that's kind of the outline we're going to be looking at here. Um, Some are divided up into basically two sections. The old generation set aside, chapters 1 to 20. And then chapters 21 to 36 is the new generation set apart. The old generation set aside and then the new generation set apart. That's another way you can look through the book of Numbers. So look at chapter 1 verse 47 with me. Let's read a few verses here. It says this, verse 47. But the Levites were not numbered among them by their father's tribe. For the Lord has spoken to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not number, nor take a census of them among the children of Israel. But you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, over all its furnishings, and over all things that belong to it. They shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. They shall attend to it and camp around the tabernacle. And when the tabernacle is to go forward... The Levite shall take it down, and when the tabernacle is to be set up, the Levite shall set it up. The outsider who comes near shall be put to death. The children of Israel shall pitch their tents, everyone by his own camp, everyone by his own standard, according to their armies. But the Levite shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony that there be, may be no wrath on the congregation of the children of Israel, and the Levite shall keep charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus, the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses so they did. So in chapter 1, we see, and we skipped over it all. Going to try to spare you from a lot of the numbers. But here's a summary of all the, the count of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? So there's their numbers there. There's the verses on the left. And then the, the number of them. All right? And like we see here, they were, they were called to encamp around the tabernacle. So here's the tabernacle, and the Levites were to be all around the middle of the, uh, all around the tabernacle. It's only the Levites that can go into the tabernacle and minister there. And then all the different tribes were called to camp around the tabernacle. So we have in chapter two, uh, beginning to really lay out now where the tribes were to camp. You got Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. All right, three tribes were to be grouped together and then camped all around the four sides of the tabernacle. You got Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun on the east side. Um, and then on the, on the west side, you got Benjamin, or sorry, yeah, Benjamin, Manasseh, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. Ephraim being the, the, the chief tribe of those ones. Then you've got, 
Um, on the south side, uh, you got Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. And then, oh, sorry, those aren't popping up. Okay. And then on the north side, you got uh, Dan, Naphtali, and Asher. Now, so here's the numbers now, because we've got all the count of the numbers of them. So you got the numbers. Now, this is interesting because as you're camping out around the town, you begin to see the numbers. And now just think of those tribes all just kind of camping out from that tabernacle, all right? And you see the two on the left, on the right, the left and the right are kind of similar in size. The one on the top is a little bit smaller. It's very interesting because the size of each tribe on the tabernacle would seem to look like that from an aerial shot. Here's the tribes all camped out there along the tabernacle. And so here's God. You just see the Holy Spirit just kind of sitting there, just sort of laughing, big smile on his face going, man, if only the people could really see from a 30,000 feet view of what's happening around the tabernacle. God's got, uh, it appears to be a cross along the tabernacle. Chapter two, verse two says that everyone of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard beside the emblems of his father's house. They shall camp some distance from the tabernacle meaning. So each of the tribes were to have a specific uh, standard or, or banner, basically, like a logo in a sense for their tribe, like a, uh, a sports team is gonna have a logo. Well, each of the tribes were to have that. And the chief tribe, that they're all bunched up in together, uh, Judah and Reuben, Ephraim, uh, Dan, or, um, you got all these different tribes here um, that were all camped out around, and they're representing these different emblems or standards. So you've got now uh, Judah representing the lion. You've got Reuben that's representing the ox. You've got Ephraim representing the man, and Dan is an eagle. These are, according to uh, tradition, tradition the, the different emblems, um, banners that these tribes were representing, that they were all now representing in each of those three tribes camped out around the tabernacle there. Now, those of you that are students of the Bible, you're going to recognize these four logos, banners, standards as being something relevant uh, and that we see throughout God's Word. Because Ezekiel now, he saw an interesting scene when he saw this this chariot-like throne and, and these four living creatures. Chapter one of Ezekiel. And it seemed to match what's recorded by John in Revelation chapter four, verse six to eight, when John was taken up to heaven and he too saw four living creatures. Look, look at this, this is exciting. Revelation four, before the throne, there was a sea of glass, a crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf or an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they did not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And so you see all those four right there mentioned, being described as the four living creatures. Had a face of a lion, uh, uh, a calf, an ox, man, and an eagle. Now, what's even more interesting is that the, the church fathers connected these descriptions to the theme of each of the Gospels. Because as you have four different campments around the tabernacle, you have four Gospels. Why four Gospels? Because each of the Gospels kind of represent or show Jesus in a bit of a, a different kind of uh, perspective or light. Matthew's Gospel, well, he sets out to reveal Jesus as the king. He's the king of the jungle, the lion, right? Represented in the lion. Uh, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Matthew's gospel reveals that. Mark's gospel represents Jesus as a suffering servant, which the ox represents that idea of servanthood. Luke's gospel shows Jesus as the son of man, emphasizing his humanity, seen in the face of a man. John's gospel reveals the deity of Jesus, that he is the son of God, seen and represented through the eagle that's soaring in the heavens, this place of deity. It's just so wonderful as you begin to see all these things. We're going right back to, to the book of Numbers and how Jesus has these different camps laid out around the tabernacle and the representation of those beginning to be seen even in the four gospels, this, this interwoven scarlet thread that's weaving its way all through scripture that's ultimately taken us right to the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. It's just exciting. Anybody else with me in that? Are you excited tonight? Because God's word is just so wonderful, so good. Well, 
Chapters 3 to 4 in Numbers pertain to the priests now. It was revealing the three main families and their duties. So we have the Gershonites, we have the Kohathites, and we have the sons of Merari. All laid out there in chapters 3 and 4. And just revealing to us the different duties that they were to have in around the tabernacle. The, The Gershonites... They were to maintain, pack up, and set up the curtains, the cloths, and the skins that overlay the tent of the tabernacle. And then the Kohathites, they were to tend to the articles of furniture, like the Ark of the Covenant, the altar of incense, the golden lampstand, the table of showbread, and all the different holy implements and, and furnishings. Then the sons of Merari looked after the, the infrastructure, the poles, the bases, the stands that hold the curtains, and, and all that around the courtyard. That was their job and their duties here of the various families of the, of the Levites here. Now, chapters 1 to 4 are really dealing with organization, but now chapters 5 to 10 in Numbers are dealing more with consecration, all right? And we see in chapter 5 the need to put out of the camp any unclean person, whether they're a leper, one that's at a discharge, one who becomes defiled by, by touching a corpse. And so, again, this consecration, they were to be holy. And so the idea is that we don't want anything to go around the, the, the camp there. And isn't it wonderful, I didn't touch on that, but isn't it wonderful that, you know, the tabernacle is sitting right in the middle, right? The very place that God desired to, to dwell and would reveal himself there. And that's the idea that God wants to be right in the very center of your life. God doesn't want to be put kind of on the outside. God doesn't want to be put, you know, over here. He wants to be right in the very center of your life where everything that we're doing is really revolving around the person uh, of Jesus Christ and, and all that he is. And so just living with that, that focus on him. And so, again, in the camp, there wasn't be anything that would come in that would defile anyone else. Now, you might think that's kind of harsh that, you know, that they'd have to be put outside the camp. But again, that was for the benefit of everybody else. That was for the protection. It wasn't just a, a judgment as to, in order to have them outside the camp where they could become clean and, and be brought back in. And so that there wouldn't be any defiling of others there in the camp. And so that's chapter 5. Chapter 6 covers the, the Nazarite vow. It's a vow of consecration to the Lord with certain requirements. Anybody, can anybody think of a, a famous person from the Bible that was under this Nazarite vow? Samson, yeah, there you go. Samson's a good, good one right there. So we also have in chapter 6 the, the famous priestly blessing. Look at chapter 6, verse 23. Speak to Aaron and, the, and his sons, saying, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What a great just blessing that was. And and isn't that important for us just to be adding into people's lives just the desire for the Lord to bless them, the desire for the Lord just to have his face shine upon them, be gracious to them, and, and just to lift up their countenance. And, and you know what? As we get to just reflect Jesus, that's something that, that we should be aiding in as we come alongside people, that we should be bringing that encouragement and that blessing into people's lives. And so the priests here, as they're ministering before the Lord, taking the people before God, taking God before the people, here was a blessing that they were to pronounce upon the people. Chapter 7, interestingly, is the second longest chapter in the Bible. And I thought it'd just be fun to go through it, just every verse here, just read it through, just because it's 89 verses. Wouldn't that be a lot of fun? What's the, what's the longest verse or chapter in the Bible? Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is really all about the Word. Yes, the word. Here, Numbers chapter 7, second longest chapter in the Bible is all about giving. Interesting. So we got the word, longest chapter, and then we got this whole subject about offering and giving. The second longest chapter in the Bible. Very, very interesting. Now, jump with me to chapter 9, verse 15. Chapter 9, verse 15. And here's what we read there. Because this is where we begin to see this unique GPS system for Israel as they travel through the wilderness. GPS, God's provisional satellite here, basically, all right? This is God not just leading them, but providing for them. Look at chapter 9, verse 15. 
Now, on the day that the tabernacle was raised up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony from evening until morning. It was above the tabernacle like the appearance of fire. So it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was taken out from above the tabernacle, after that, the children of Israel would journey. And in the place where the cloud settled, there the children of Israel would pitch their tents. At the command of the Lord, the children of Israel would journey. And at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud stayed above the tabernacle, they remained encamped. So, this is really cool. Because God would guide them perfectly, And he would also provide for them while out in the wilderness. While they're traveling in the wilderness, he he would guide them and provide for them by being a cloud, a pillar cloud by day that would shade them from the, the, the sun, right? Just the blistering, beating down heat of the sun upon them in the desert. God would shade them through this cloud. And then the desert can get very cool at night. And so God is this this pillar of fire at night to to guide them and also to provide for them, bring them warmth from the coolness of the desert evenings. And whenever the people saw either one of these move, they began to move with it, right? God didn't give them warning. He didn't give them details where they were going. The people just needed to follow by faith. And that's exactly how it is for us, isn't it? Sometimes the only words we hear from God is go. Don't you hate that? Because we, we want to go where? What am I going to do when I get there? How is this all going to work out, God? We want the details. We want the whole you know, piece of the puzzle put together. We don't want to just hear one word and go. And yet that's what it was for Abraham. Abraham, go. Go to land that I will, I will show you. Abraham didn't know where he was going. Much like us men most of the time. And that's what it says in the word Abraham went not knowing where he was going, right? That's, that's the way it is oftentimes. Because God wants us to be those that are simply following obediently. And when we begin to take that step of faith, then God begins to sometimes reveal to us the next piece. And as we step in faith, he begins to reveal a little bit more. He begins to guide us and, and, and lead us and, and bring confirmation for how he is directing us were those that are walking or to be walking by faith and not by what? Sight. Exactly. Well, this is going to be the thing that the Lord is really looking to build into his people, but it's going to be about as easy as getting a square peg into a round hole for the children of Israel here, especially in the book of Numbers as we see. This is not going to be an easy thing as he's looking to, to bring them to that place of just faith and trust in him. Look at Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. Numbers 10, verse 11. Now it came to pass on the 20th day, the second month in the second year, that the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of the testimony. And the children of Israel set out from the wilderness of Sinai on their journeys. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So they started out for the first time according to the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. The standard of the camp of the children of Judah set out first according to their armies. Over their army was was Nashon the son of a minute, I'm going to stop right there. But here's the point. Is that Judah is going out first. They're on the move. And they're led by the tribe of Judah. Judah means, anybody? Praise. Yeah. Judah means praise. Here's how they were to go out. They were to go out with praise. Not, not complaining. Not questioning. Not wondering what's going on. But they were to go out with praise. That's the way it's supposed to be as we move out in obedience to the Lord. We're, we're to go forth with praise and with gladness. Because... We have a great God. We have one who is a help and strength to us, who's going before us. And so we should be those that are filled with praise. Even though we may not know what he's got in store, what's the next step, what's the next place. We may not have all the the answers to our questions, but we should be those filled with praise. Just as Judah is to go up there to go up marching forward in praise, rejoicing because God's on the move. And wherever God is, that's where I want to be. I don't need to worry about where are we going. If God's going, that's where I want to be. If that's where God's going to take me, that's where I want to be. So let's go forth in praise and in faith. Well, as we'll see, the people of Israel were not so much filled with praise, but they were filled with a few other things. Look at Numbers 11, verse 1. (laughs) Now, when the people 
complained. It displeased the Lord. For the Lord heard it and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses. And when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So he called the name of the place Taborah because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. Now, here they are. They're on the move. God's on the move. We're following the Lord. Things are progressing. We should be praising the Lord. But what do we read in chapter 11? They complained. It didn't take long. Now, we're not sure exactly here what they're complaining about. We may not know their problem, but we're given a clue as to their position. Because notice there, it says the fire consumed some in the outskirts of the camp, right? Consumed some in the outskirts of the camp at the end of verse 1. These were the people who weren't in close proximity to the Lord. They were offering up grumbling rather than gratitude to the Lord. And this type of grumbling and complaining, sadly, can become very contagious. Look at verse 4 of chapter 11. Now, the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense cravings. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the, the onions and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. And, it's, and I love this because it's like the Lord gives a little reminder about this manna. It says, now the manna was like coriander seed and it's color like the color of, uh, of that word. The people went out about and gathered it, grounded on millstones or beat it in the mortar, cooked it in pans and made cakes of it. And its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. Mmm. This is kind of a little reminder. They're complaining about the manna, but let me just remind you, man, this stuff was good, right? Like Krispy Kreme's being dropped on the wilderness floor for you all there. I mean, this is good stuff. But notice the, the progression here. In, in verse 4, it's the mixed multitude that began to have intense cravings. Now, who's the mixed multitude? Well, it's those that have, have come out of Egypt with the Israelites. Some might think it's those that have been born to an Egyptian and an Israelite parent. Either way, these are people that have one foot in Egypt and, and one foot with Israel. And it went from the mixed multitude to Israel. Look at, at verse 4. The mixed multitude who were among them yielded in his cravings. So the children of Israel also wept again. It went from the mixed multitude to the children of Israel. It began to spread. It, this complaining began to become contagious. Just as there will be those like the mixed multitude that might come into church who like to hang out with the people of God, but haven't yet said goodbye to the things of the world. They're going to come in and begin to breed disruption and discord in the body of Christ. And we need to be aware, we need to be careful that we don't have an ear that's tuned into the complaining and the grumbling, but rather an ear that's turned into the Lord, tuned into the Lord. Because the complaining and the grumbling, like I said, begins to sow discord. And discord is something that God hates. Well, how do you know that? Well, look at Proverbs 6, verse 16 and 19. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven. They're an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. This is something that the Lord specifies very clearly. I'm against this. And how we need to be careful that we're not walking around complaining and contentious because it's contagious. As we see through the book of Numbers, God is going to deal with it. Because your complaint is ultimately with him. You know, there's a lot of things that we find ourselves sometimes grumbling about, griping about. And, and we like to point the finger and think, it's because of what that person's doing. Because of that thing over there. But you know, ultimately, your complaint is with the Lord. It's important that we don't sow discord through complaining. And it's also important that we don't listen to the mixed multitude. Don't look back on the former things with 
an intense craving, thinking that they were better than what we have now in the Lord. That's exactly what the enemy would love you to think. These people are looking back, oh man, how we long for the, the delicacies, the food that we had once in Egypt. And I mean, this is nothing more than a selective memory disorder here among the people. Right? And the enemy loves to distort these things. The enemy loves to kind of make you think that what you once had, what you once were experiencing, was really fun, was really good, was really satisfying. But you remember when you, when you came to the Lord, how much you were happy to leave those things be, behind when you recognized that it's in Jesus that we find satisfaction. And in Him only. But the enemy would love to start to twist things around and make you think, oh, was it really that bad? And you have to reply, yes, it was. That's why I left it. I don't want anything to do with it again. Let's not allow him to begin to distort these things. See, God has something far better for you. It's only with the Lord that we're going to experience things getting better and better. It's not in returning to the former things that we're going to find them getting better. It's only as we follow the Lord that we're going to find things getting better and better. Just like Jesus in the first miracle, turning water to wine, right? Remember the people, they tried, they said, you know, not only have you done this great miracle, but you've saved the best to last. That's how it is with Jesus. He makes, he just keeps making things better and better as we follow him. So, in this account, Moses is burdened down by all this, right? He, he turns to the Lord for help. And, and so the Lord, in chapter 11 here, he says, Moses, you need to get some people come alongside you that will help carry the burden. So he instructs him to have, bring 70 elders here, right? And, and God said that he would take the, the, the spirit that's on Moses and he would place it upon them as well. And what a reminder it, that is for us, how... Any kind of service we're doing to the Lord, just in living these last Lord, how we need the Holy Spirit present in our lives, filling us. Lord said, you gather 70 elders, don't just gather those that are what, what you think to be, you know, uh, the most equipped, because I'm going to give them the Spirit, and, and that's what's going to equip them. God's not concerned about, you know, all your abilities, He just wants your availability, and God will supply what you need through His Spirit. Now, Chapter 11 ends with the Lord supplying quail for the people who whine for me. Because that's what they're doing there in, in verse 4, right? They're all going, we're tired of the manna. We want meat. We want something, you know, of, of substance here. So the Lord says, all right, you, you want some quail? And, and I love it. I, I, I don't know if, if I can um, find it right here. But uh, no, this is good. Verse 20. Um, Go to verse 19. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days. This is, this is God telling Moses what's going to come here. You want meat? I'll give you meat, right? It says you're going to eat not two days, nor four days, nor ten days, nor twenty days. Verse 20. But for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have despised the Lord who is among you. Don't you love that? You want meat? I'm going to give you meat. You're going to eat meat so much. It's going to be coming out of your nostrils, man. All right, but so now the Lord supplies quail for them, and, and now check this out here. It, it says in verse, um, verse thirty-three. But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. So He called the name of that place Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had yielded to craving. From Kibroth Hatava, the people moved to Hazroth and camped at, at Hazroth. So quail came and they just rushed at it and they just jumped right into it. I mean, but they just began to, and it just, plague came upon them, right? Supplied the quail, but it ended up killing them. They craved after something that wasn't of the Lord. See, they became discontent and that discontent led to death. To the place, to the point where this place is called Kibroth Hatava, which means graves of craving. Graves of craving. That's what this place became known as. And how we need to be those that, you know, walk in, in self-control. We're all going to have cravings for certain things. We've got to judge and look at and discern what is helpful, what's healthy, what's good. I don't need to be one that has to answer to my cravings. I want to answer to the Lord. I want to do what He desires. 
Let it be a reminder that when you begin to crave things that are not of the Lord, it's not going to result in anything good. Learn to be content because God will bless you. It says in Psalm 84, 11, for the Lord, God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Where's the meat? They're all saying, right? Where's the beef? <laughs> who remembers that commercial? Man, that's an old one. Anybody with me? Where's the beef? Wendy's? Okay, thank you. So I'm not that old. Come on. I got others here with me. Where's the meat? They're all asking. But, you know, we understand and see that the Lord will not withhold any good thing from you. For those that are walking uprightly, you don't need to question. You don't need to say, God, why are you withholding this from me? God's not going to withhold any good thing from you. Trust him. You don't need to answer to the cravings. You don't need to yield to the cravings. Learn to be content in what the Lord has for you. Walk uprightly. Follow him in o- obediently. And he's going to give you all that you need. So we need to learn to be content with what we have and with what the Lord has for us. Chapter 12 exposes another discontent which led to further discord. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. So they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now, the man, Moses, was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. I love that, because who's writing this, right? It's Moses. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> just have to... Moses was the most humble man around. Isn't that great? Now, I think we give Moses a break, because, um, you know, humility is just really, I think, being being honest. Being honest with who you are. I don't think Moses is trying to brag, puff himself up here. I think he's just being honest, that he's walking Desiring to walk in, in humility here. And he's being led of the Holy Spirit in this here, you know. It's being honest. I think if you were to say, oh, Moses was a real idiot, not humble. Well, then that's kind of like false humility. When we try to put ourselves down all the time, well, then we're, you know, kind of walking in, in false humility. And you just be honest with who we are and, and everything. So here's Moses. And, and in verse 4, suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. That's... Boy, that would be terrifying if the Lord said that. Hey, you three, come here, right? Oh my goodness, that'd be scary. Then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam and they both went forward. So here's the deal. Aaron and Miriam, Moses's brother and sister, all right? These guys have been, been a team. They've been working together. But they begin to wonder why Moses was the main man in charge, and, and, and they begin to bring this question up, you know, about this Ethiopian woman that he had married, all right? Zipporah um, is believed to have passed on, is believed he's married another woman, not an Ethiopian woman. And they begin to kind of criticize this and wonder what's going on with that. But it's just a smokescreen. Because the real issue is, Moses, you know, are you the only one that the Lord can work through? Are you the only one that, that God's going to speak through? Doesn't he also... Isn't he also able to speak through us as well? The first question is this real smokescreen for the deeper rooted problem of envy. Because in verse 2, what are they asking? They're getting to the real root of the problem. Envy. The Lord indeed, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? And well, that didn't go over well with the Lord, as you can imagine. Basically, they're saying, what about us? This isn't fair. We want a piece of the pie here ourselves, Right? Envy, again, breeds discontent and discord and puts you in the center focus thinking that you deserve better. Makes it all about you. It fails to say, God, whatever you choose to do in a situation through a person or however you want to work, I'm fine with. Like I said, all complaining is ultimately complaining against God because you're failing to say, God, however you want to work, whoever you want to use, whatever you want to do in a certain situation, Lord, I'm good with. When we complain against those things, we're saying, God, I'm not happy with the way that you're doing things. And so as they're complaining, they're confronting Moses, but it's the Lord who hears. The Lord who hears, and he calls them forward. Envy is something that will eat away at you. It's going to corrupt you. What happened to Miriam? Well, it, it says there, down in verse 
Um, let's see here. I'm on the wrong chapter. Down in verse 9. So the anger of the Lord was aroused against him and he departed. Um, and when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous as white as snow. That's a fitting picture too because leprosy is a picture of sin. Leprosy is something that starts under the skin, right? And it begins to surface and and come above the skin. Envy is something that we oftentimes think we can hide this. It's under the skin. It's, It's there, but then... If we allow this to fester and grow, it's going to burst out as Aaron and Miriam are doing with Moses. They're not, they're not content with what the Lord's doing, with what the Lord has for them. They want more. They begin to get selfish, envious of another person, another ministry. Easy to happen, isn't it? Lord, how come, how come I can't do what that person's doing? And sometimes we see what's going on and we think, I want to be doing that. I want that. And so saying, Lord, what do you have for me? Because the reward, the blessing doesn't come from doing what you think you're going to get the greatest reward or blessing from. The reward and the blessing comes from simply walking in obedience to what God has called you to do. Because even the things that are done in secret, God says, Jesus says, I'm going to reward openly. It's learning to be content. Not allowing... Envy to come and begin to sow discontent and discord again in the camp as it's doing here. Well, Miriam was put out of the camp and everyone was prevented from from moving forward until she was received back in. Uh, Again, I think it's a good picture of of what envy does because it, it, it burns inside and without realizing it, it can have lasting effects on the whole community as a whole. As we begin to kind of get isolated, we, we begin to prevent progress, as Miriam is doing here. Put outside, camp's not allowed to move forward until she's made well and brought back in. Well, Numbers 13, Numbers 13, we move in now as they're continuing on the move, and now they're camped out, they're right there by the promised land. And they're at a place where they're like, let's check out this land. Let's send some spies into the land. And so they decide to spend, send 12 spies into the land. Look at verse 25 of chapter 13. We're going to read a little bit here. It says in verse 25, And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land, and they told them and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. All right? They brought back these great clusters of grapes, right? Like bowling balls. I mean, they're like, Man, it's true, right? Everything the Lord said about this land, it's true, right? This is its fruit. Verse 28, Nevertheless, <laughs> should have just stopped right there, right? <laughs> Verse 20, Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Verse 30, then, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they, they had spied out saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight and so we were in their sight. That's the the report from the 10 spies that see all these things. Yes, it's true when they say we were as grasshoppers in our own sight. True. But what's not true is that so they were in their sight. Because you remember when the people went into the promised land, first thing they come upon is Jericho. 
and they come to Rahab. Remember the report that Rahab gives is that, you know, the fear of you guys are upon us. I just lost our connection here. The fear of you guys is upon us. Do you want to see, Cole, if you can get the keynote back up in there? Um, Rahab's telling them all that. Yeah, thank you, David. That all these things are going on. We're hearing the reports about all that God is doing with you guys and through you guys. And the people in the land are terrified of them. And so though these spies are going in and they're seeing all the, the evidence that these people are strong, there's giants, they did not need to say that we're like grasshoppers in their sight because they were terrified of God's people and all that God's done. And they need to have faith in what the Lord was going to do. Well, chapter 14, verse 1 continues on and says, So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Now, the people, the people of Israel had been given direction and instruction from the Lord that he was taking them into Canaan and that he was giving them this promised land. The how this is going to happen is really unimportant. They just need to trust the Lord. God says, I'm giving you this land. I'm giving you this land. It's yours, guys. Take it. They didn't need to worry about how. What about these people? Uh... Where should we, they didn't need to start asking all the questions. They didn't say, great, thank you, God. You're giving it to us. And they need to recognize the very God that's already seen them through deliverance out of Egypt, seen them through the Red Sea, delivered water from a rock, manna from heaven. The very God that's already proven himself to them was the very God that's going to bring them into the promised land, the very God that they just needed to simply trust for this next step. Because that's really nothing in light of what he's already done for them. But they began to doubt. The problem was that these ten spies saw the giants, whereas Joshua and Caleb saw the one yet bigger and greater and stronger than all those giants put together, and that's God. They didn't need to sweat the details. They just needed to trust God. But these ten spies, again, begin to sow discord among the camp. Begin to say, ah, we can't do it. They're bigger than us. They're stronger than us. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. We can't do it, guys. Begin to sow discord. Look at what Hebrews 3, verse 16 19 says. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Listen, unbelief will rob you of all that God has for you. There's many times in our lives where God's calling us to do something. And we have one or two options. We're going to respond in belief and trust with what God can do. Or we're going to respond in unbelief. These people thought, you know what? We'll be safer if we don't go in. But guess what? Their unbelief robbed them from what God wanted to do and how God wanted to bless them and all that God was going to give them, the promised land, the abundant life. Unbelief is always going to rob us of God's best. And it doesn't take a lot to disbelieve. It's really not a big thing that we have to do of action, of work. It's just, all right, Lord, I'm going to trust you. That's it. It's really quite simple, isn't it? And upon that, God blesses you for that. But these people, because of unbelief, were robbed of what God wanted to do for them. And now, chapter 14, the people are ready to pick a new leader to take them back to Egypt. They're all like, oh, forget it. Can't do it. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to the place where we were under slavery and bondage. Is that really better? 
Let's pick a new leader who's going to take us back. But then chapter 14, Joshua and Caleb, they stand up and try to encourage the people once more that God is on their side. And this is no biggie for God. God can see them through. God can take them in. We got to just have courage and strength and faith in God. And the people hear this and what do they do? They pick up stones ready to stone Joshua and Caleb. They want to shut it out. And at that point, this cloud, this glory of God again comes upon the tabernacle. And just sort of brings an end to all this here. And so the chapter continues with Moses now interceding in verse 11. Interceding for the people and and for God choosing to... Well, sorry, Moses interceding for the people. And then we see in the chapter that God is going to choose to have that generation of unbelief die out in the wilderness rather than enter into the promise. And look at verse 20 of chapter 14. Verse 20 of chapter 14. Then the Lord said, I've pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord because all these men who have seen my glory in the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these 10 times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went into his descendants shall inherit it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow turn and move out in the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. So both Joshua and Caleb, we know, are going to be brought in because they're men of, of faith. But notice that the Lord said these 10 times, right? They put me to the test these 10 times. What, what times is he talking about? Well, these temptations, these tests were uh, as follows. At the Red Sea, at Merah, in the wilderness of Sin, two rebellions concerning the manna, at Rephidim, at Horb, at Taborah, at Kibroth, Hattabah, and at Kadesh, where the murmuring and the spies report. So there's all these situations, all these events that took place coming out of, out of Egypt, going along that each of these places, we don't have water. We don't have food. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? How are we going to get to the Red Sea? Moses just brought us out here to die. All these complaints, they were tests. They were tempting the Lord. Ten times they've done it. And now the Lord says, no more. I'm not going to bring that. I'm not going to bring that into the promised land. I'm going to have them wander now for these next 40 years where they're going to die out and it'll be a new generation that's going to go in the promised land. Everybody, everybody from 20 years and up would eventually die out, come to rest in the, in the wilderness, coming short of what God had for them. Chapter ends with the people recognizing their sin. End of chapter 14. Very strange. Look at verse 39. Then Moses told these words to all the children of Israel and the people mourned greatly and they rose early in the morning and went up to the top of the mountain saying, here we are and we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised for we have sinned. And Moses said, now why do you transgress the command of the Lord? For this will not succeed. Do not go up lest you be defeated by your enemies for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you and you shall fall by the sword because you have turned away from the Lord. The Lord will not be with you, but they presumed to go up to the mountaintop. Nevertheless, neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed from the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as Hormah. So, here the people are like, okay, we understand, we get it, we are wrong, let's go for it now. But it's too late. I said, no, you're not going to go. You're not going to go. And they presumed, said, if we go up on the mountain, we can, we can take these guys down. We'll go for it. We'll do it. And they get driven back by the enemy. You know, we need to be careful that we're not stepping out in presumption, having faith in faith rather than faith in God. You see, you may... Feel the power, but do you have the authority to go forward? These people felt, okay, we've got, we're going to exercise faith now. We're going to have faith in faith, but they didn't have faith in God. They didn't have the authority to move forward. You can sit at a red light in a nice hot rod, ready just to unleash the power under that hood. But unless you have a green light, you're going to face some dire consequences if you move out in that power. 
you need to make sure you're going forward in the right authority. That's what happened to the people of, of Israel here. They went forward thinking we can do it, but they didn't have the authority. Well, it's obvious that there's a real issue of sin in the camp. So God gives fresh instruction and reminders about offerings for sin. God says again in Numbers 15, verse 2, he said, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you have come into the land that you are to inhabit, which I'm giving to you, it reminds them that his people will enter in. But these are the things that they're to do to continue to walk rightly before him. So he lays out a lot of the different offerings that they're to do, laws concerning unintentional sin and, and different things. And so chapter 15 lays out for them again, when you're in the land, here's how you're to walk rightly before me. Because sin is an issue. And we want to make sure we're dealing with that issue of sin. But that sin issue is a strong one and it rears its ugly head again in chapter 16. And by the way, if you got any kids in, in, in kids club, if you want to just kind of sneak out and grab them and if you want to come back in with them and just finish up our study, we're going to be wrapping up shortly here. But if you need got kids, or just go ahead and, and grab them if you can. That sin issue is a strong one. Number 16, we see it coming up again. It says in verse 1 of chapter 16, it says there, now Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Wow. I mean, haven't we been there already? Done that? Seen that? Heard that? With bad results? Didn't they learn the lesson from, from Miriam and Aaron? I mean, sin can make you very hard-hearted or, I don't know, soft-headed. I don't know what's the right term. They both apply, I think, there. But sin at work here is going to make you do just stupid things. And here now they come and oppose Moses and Aaron again. But instead of Moses getting in their face, verse 4, it says, so when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. Just goes before the Lord, again in humility. And he simply invites them to a bit of a, a showdown at the wilderness corral now, all right? This is good. Moses lays out the terms of the contest in verse 28 to verse 30. Basically saying, listen, you guys come. You bring your, your, your sensors of, of fire. You guys come. And here's the deal. If you guys die just a natural death, well, then okay. Then the Lord has not sent, sent me, is what Moses is saying. If you guys just die a natural death, no big deal. But if you die a very unusual death, and Moses could have just you know, stopped right there, just died an unusual death. And said, okay, well, I, I, that death, that kind of classifies an unusual death. No, he specifies it now. He says, if the ground opens up and swallows you in, then we'll know that you are simply rebels and that the Lord is not for you. That's a very unusual way to die. If you die an unusual, no, it doesn't just end it there. Let's, let's get specific now. And as he says that, guess what happens? The earth opened up and consumed Korah and these men that were with them consume them swallow them up boom and the earth closed back up again that's remarkable and yet under such clear signs of God's power and confirmation of Moses and Aaron being God's chosen leaders look at what we read right after verse 41 of chapter 16 on the next day all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron saying you have killed the people of the Lord. What? <laughs> Come on. Are you kidding me? I mean, these guys are not getting it at all. They're such hard-hearted here. They see the work of the Lord that God is for Moses in such unique and interesting ways. And yet, now they're complaining once more that it's Moses that killed the people. Well, the Lord, in wrath, threatened to destroy them. But chapter 16, God again, uh, through Moses and Aaron, 
Moses and Aaron went before the tabernacle meeting, intercedes for them. And the Lord struck the people with a dreadful plague. Only when Aaron rushed in the midst of the congregation with, with incense and made atonement for the people, then the plague stopped. So here's Moses and Aaron looking to help the people and save them. But by that time, still 14,700 had perished. The leaders, along with the congregation that had challenged the priesthood of Aaron, now it was the priestly intercession of Aaron which stopped the plague. Moses and Aaron were not the ones who killed the Lord's people, but rather the ones that helped save them. That's great mercy and grace that they're showing. Well, chapter 17, God confirms his staff <laughs> through the staff of, of Aaron, all right? He's like going to confirm, these are the people that I've got that are working for me, okay? He says, bring all the, all the, all the leaders of the congregation, bring your rod in and, and lay it down. And the rod that's going to bud is kind of the man that I've chosen. Of course, it's Aaron's bod, uh, rod that begins to bud and, and, and grow Aaron, uh, almonds. It begins to bear fruit. And so that's all seen. That's the rod that gets placed in the Ark of the Covenant along with the, um, the commandments and the, the manna that's there. Now, because Aaron and his sons are God's chosen people to serve in the tabernacle, and the only ones permitted to do so, of course, right? Well, their duties are again given in chapter 18, along with a reminder of the support they're to receive from the people. Chapter 19 gives us a very unique law of purification. Now, we're going to wrap up with this chapter right here, so um, bear with me. This is the end here. But chapter 19 details, let me just read what, what Skip Heidzik um, wrote here. He said, chapter 19 details a strange ritual for cleansing those who become defiled, especially by touching a dead person. Here's the ritual. They were to find a red heifer. A heifer is a young female cow who has never given birth. A red one that is, is reddish in hue is considered a biological anomaly. Very unique. According to Jewish tradition, there have only been nine red heifers from the time of Moses to the destruction of the second temple. The red heifer was taken, burned, the ashes collected and then kept for generations because there would be a lot of ashes, right? Uh, a few of the ashes would be put into a vessel, running spring water would be put into the vessel and if someone was defiled ceremonially, especially by touching a dead corpse, the priest would then take a hyssop branch, dip it in the water and sprinkle the people and that would cleanse them. It was the cleansing of this red heifer, that's what it was known as, Right? And it's interesting that the oral law of the Mishnah has several sections all about the red heifer. Now, the, the Temple Institute has announced the birth, and this is very recently now, okay? Temple Institute has, has announced the birth of a flawless, all-red heifer that could pave the way for the fulfillment of a major end times biblical prophecy. The reddish-colored female calf was reportedly born just on August 28th of this year. And it's being raised in accordance with the Jewish laws of the Torah, according to the Temple Institute. Now, in Jewish theology, uh, in Jewish theology, the red heifer is essential to the rebuilding of the third holy temple. That's going to be in Jerusalem. And it'll be needed to be sacrificed to complete the ritual of purification for the temple. So it's claimed there have only been nine true red heifers, as I said, and the tenth as some say, will herald the construction of the third temple. Several red heifers have been born in the past, but have been disqualified for not meeting specific biblical requirements or things have, have begun to, to, to grow or being spotted on those that have disqualified them. But here now they have, just in very recent months, what they believe is to be this 10th all-red heifer, which many are saying this is having very much prophetic importance to it. So we'll see. We'll leave it at that. All right, very interesting. But that's chapter 19, the laws of purification uh, with this red heifer. We'll pick it up next Wednesday in chapter 20 and we'll look to finish the book of Numbers. And so take that thing home with you, tuck in your Bibles and consult that next week as we finish up in chapter 20.